Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground of the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the Reform Faith and Family Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Reform Faith and Family Podcast. We are your hosts, Caleb and Lindsay Stomberg. Hello. This is episode number 14, uh, and we're going to be taking a couple weeks, uh, this one and the next one, to discuss biblical marriage. We've taken some time uh, to look over biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, or at least to touch on some highlight points. Um, we have not claimed to have been exhaustive on any of these issues, uh, but this week we're going to take a couple, start a couple-week look at biblical marriage, um, and the kind of just a lot of this is laying a broad foundation, I guess, to kind of get us maybe on the same page. And then as, as we explore things uh, more thoroughly or just smaller issues and kind of dive in uh, as our podcast progresses, we'll have more of a frame of reference. No, I think that's a really good point. And 
we talked about biblical manhood and womanhood, and that is so foundational to what we're about to talk about in marriage. So it was an extremely important we did those first. Yeah, and and of course, if we're talking marriage, we're going to be talking about manhood and womanhood again uh, as it comes in, and, and hopefully we won't have to lay all the groundwork again. Uh, so the the plan is over these uh, these next two episodes, uh, we're gonna we're gonna break up uh, our looking at marriage into two parts. Um, the first one on marriage as fundamental to God's creation, uh, really focusing in on on marriage as part of the design for that God has for humanity that the the man and woman one flesh bond as as really critical to what it means to be human in God's image. Um, so that'll be this first ep- this first episode, and then the next one. Uh, it's probably going to be that some that's maybe a little bit more familiar uh, when we talk about marriage in the church, and it's uh, marriage is a picture of the gospel. But that one is going to be more practical. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, husband and wife dynamics and how to approach conflict and and some more nitty gritty stuff. Right, and and hopefully we can get you know into some practical things you know everywhere we go. But yes, but you're right. Sometimes. Um, sometimes it's hard not to just get more theological, in, in, theological and lofty conversation. I do want to ask our listeners, though, that if you have a chance, if you wouldn't mind just pausing the podcast and or just scrolling down and leaving a five-star review for us and sharing it with a friend, that is super helpful for us to get our podcast out there, and it's a way that you can show your support for free. Absolutely. We would appreciate it. I mean a lot. So as we, as we begin this conversation of biblical marriage, we want to acknowledge really three different kind of um, of dominant worldviews or, you know, common schools of thought, I guess, when it comes to approaching uh, the marriage relationship. And it probably doesn't need to be said, but we'll just say it. There, there is no such thing as a marriage that isn't between one man and one woman. Any other kind of relationship uh, is some kind of lie. Now, you, you can make a case biblically for, you know, polygamy, that if a man having multiple wives and then being wives and we don't uh, uphold that, though. We're, 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 we're <laughs> I not, want to make that clear. We're not advancing for that, but that's the only thing you could you could have a shot at making an argument for. Uh, anything else uh, is not marriage. And uh, just to be very clear, God defines what marriage is. And that's that's a lot of what we're talking about today is God's design uh, in marriage, um, God's design for humanity and, and for human culture and society in his image. So the God is the one who defines what marriage is. Not the state, um, not apostate churches that are still claiming the name of Christ. Uh, God alone defines what marriage is. Um, but there are three different, I guess, schools of thought um, that are most common when it comes to understanding uh, men and women's roles in marriage. And this will be kind of helpful to kind of lay out because uh, we'll probably point back to here and some of the differences as we go on. Uh, the first one would be an egalitarian position. Yes. So uh, egalitarian is civil, familial, and ecclesiastical equality between the genders, right? Yeah, it, it's really just a, a, basically a leveling of the field. I mean, there's uh, any kind of differences are severely downplayed or attributed to uh, societal functions or, or just, um, you know, cultural kind of things, and, and that they're artificially impressed upon men and women, uh, not that are innate to them. So that. Um, egalitarian goes further than just being equal image bearers. Right. Yeah. When, and we, we should say that a, there is, uh, in its right form, uh, 
well, I guess I, I don't know if I could say there's a right form of egalitarianism, but all three of these uh, positions that we're going to talk about would have a form that uh, would acknowledge fully the equality and the image of God of man and woman. Um, so even as we get further away from from this uh, the egalitarian side, uh, there's nothing we're going to advance that doesn't wholeheartedly affirm the e- the uh, equality of uh, men and women in worth, um, men and women before Christ. You know that we are equally partakers of Christ in in the in the scheme of of redemption. Um, but so that definitely goes before this. So when we talk about equality, we're not simply just saying that we're of equal value and and can be loved equally by God and uh, and some of those things. It it is it is really a leveling that there is no difference um, equal in roles. Equal in roles. roles. Uh, you know that there's not a difference. There's not a difference in design. Uh, between men or women for how we should function and operate uh, all things are open to both men and women you know positions authorities all that kind of stuff i think that's a a good explanation so think of egalitarian and equality and yeah egalitarian and kind of our modern our our general uh cultural zeitgeist uh that this is your favorite word uh, it's not my favorite word, but it's a good word. Uh, that it's it's just really where the mood of, of the culture is at. At to level everything, everything is, um, you know, can be fluid as far as what what somebody what roles they act out of, but it, do, it they're not defined by those things, and yeah, all that kind of stuff. It's it's a very common in in our modern cultural moment. Uh, the second position then would be complementarian. Um, so in, in complementarian position. Uh, you have civil equity, um, but familial and ecclesiastical unique callings. Flush that out a little bit, Lindsay. So complementarianism is what you and I grew up under. Uh, and John Piper and Wayne Grudem had a a book that they wrote on, it was it Recovering Biblical yeah, Manhood recovering and Womanhood. Man and, woman, yep. and that's where I first became familiar with the term complementarianism. And we held, we held to that for a while. We would have claimed that that title, but in recent years, we have realized the baggage that goes along with that and would not hold to that any longer because I think in many ways we see complementarianism now, how it, w- it was actually born out of feminism. Um, it was like a, a way of combating the well, feminist I, message of the age. That's what that's what conservative churches came up with, or conservative leaders like a John Piper or Wayne Grudem. That's what the the term they came up with too. Yeah, it was inspired by, but not born out of. Okay. So let's let's clarify that. So it's not it's not that we feel it's a position that was defined out of a feminist or trying to defend a feminist position. It was trying to speak to the cultural moment of feminism, and define. Um, exactly what what are the differences what are what is the relationship that men and women should have with each other so um, and it really did affirm that men and women have unique calling callings and that their gender roles and in, in contrast to an egalitarian view right and in this view there there are many people who would still call themselves complementarian that i would i would say i'm very similar or we're very similar in our, our positions to and um it's not that you can't be i think faithfully biblical and still call yourself complementarian uh, it's simply that the tendency ha- has been going in a direction within the complementarian kind of movement uh, to go a way that is no longer helpful or most um, ad- accurate in, in describing what we would see in Scripture. So that's kind of why we would disavow that that title, but not because we think that it's purely um, 
wicked or or just you know bows to the world like egalitarianism simply does. Um, the problem with and we see a lot within complementarianism now is that it um, it can go move into what we would consider more like a soft complementarianism or a, a squishy complementarianism where. Um, when, you know, as defined by guys like Grudem and Piper and, and other people that have been a part of that, um, they define the goodness of God in, in the designs of different roles for men and women. Um, and then that's where they, sh- that's where they will flourish out of. So there, that, that was built into when they, when this was kind of framed initially, and there's still some that would hold on to that, but it seems like there's more and more, um, where it's the people that call themselves complementarian. It's, it's there, they reluctantly, will admit that, okay, yeah, it's the Bible really does seem to say that women aren't supposed to be pastors. But, you know, it's with the caveats. But there's a lot of women that could preach circles around men. You know, it's always that kind of thing of like, you know, it, it's it's kind of silly and arbitrary, but I guess God said it, so we kind of have to do so it. So it's denying God's design in it. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's denying that there's a real... A, a beautiful purpose, a good purpose in it. And someone, they're, it's even denying that it's the... It's the best, you know, that God's design for different roles um, is ideal for women as it is for men and for human flourishing in general. So it's kind of like a reluctant thing. Like, so for a woman to be complementarian is for her to always kind of give up a piece of what she could be and maybe what she even should be. But that's her sacrifice to bear if she's going to um, be in, in, a, in a Christian church or, you know, if she's going to follow Jesus. And, and I, I would just reject that. I don't, I don't think the kind of submission and stuff that we see in scripture and the specific roles that we see for women in scripture. I don't think that's her denying anything other than her sinful impulse that that's her actually embracing what is going to be most fulfilling to her most. That's going to make her most like Jesus, most pleasing to God. Uh, and it, so it's not her sacrificing, it's her embracing what she was made for. So I, that's where I, I really get uncomfortable with that kind of where it leans into that side, like, well, it's, yeah, I guess they kind of have to, or women can't, but it's really almost sinful or it's too bad, you know, and, and I reject that. I don't, I don't think that it, it's arbitrary or that it's insignificant. So the third position then that, that we would actually hold to now, uh, at least we'd claim the title and, and be more comfortable with it, even if there is potentially some baggage that can be with any title, is uh, a patriarchal uh, understanding of the roles of men and women in marriage. Uh, so in there you have male headship in civil, familial, and ecclesial, uh, ecclesiastical. ecclesiastical. <laughs> that's a good word. Ecclesiastical sphere. So it's um, it's not just, it, it embraces the similar ideas that there are unique roles and, and is unique design uh, that God has, has made for men and women. Uh, but it also recognizes that uh, we really need to keep kind of at the center of that is, is that idea of headship. Um, and even uh, as, you know, we talk about our next episode is going to be more on where the where the marriage pictures the gospel. But throughout there, headship is an important part of that. And we think it's, it's really a central part to understanding marriage and understanding God's design uh, for mankind, God's design for the family. Uh, it's really kind of at the heart of that. And, and, it, and it, it takes more from there, pulls more from that, or, or uh, sees more significance in that. And it's this, it's not, it's not just, okay, somebody's got to be the leader. It's no, God created men differently. He created them for a purpose to go after certain things, you know, for the roles as we've defined them before. Um, 
and, and really we got to we got to recognize that and embrace that uh, on both ends. I think just realizing too that throughout all of history, this wasn't a question about a patriarch or patron. We're having all sorts of trouble saying words over here, guys. But uh, seeing this as a patriarchal uh, view through that lens wasn't a problem throughout all of history until feminism hit. And we're going to actually be hitting this bell a few times throughout this episode, but feminism has really changed our our view, has, has muddied up our lenses. And it's something that we've got to work really hard to clear away. And we talked about complementarianism being um, something that was brought against. Well, some people might say, well, patriarchy is just something that's new that people are bringing up and why is everybody focusing on this? Is that not just, you know, like the pendulum swing the other way? But really, we see right now a a type of reformation happening where people are getting back to what the scripture says. So just talking about a patriarchal worldview on this matter of biblical marriage, we're just getting back to what scripture says. Yeah, and and I think in this issue and, and, and other ones when it comes to in the church, I think we're seeing a rise in people... Um, abandoning kind of the middle ground and reaching back uh, to what would have been there centuries ago. And I think, um, understandably, let's, let's give benefit of the doubt and, and, and attribute the um, best motives as we can for people in the church. We ought to do that when we're thinking of brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think there was a, a strong effort from a lot of Christians to try and not deny what Scripture teaches, but to find ways to communicate that in a way that was most sensitive and, and um, most palatable. Now, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's I'm not, I'm not saying change the message of Scripture for what the world wants to hear. We've seen plenty of that, too. But there has been a lot of, there's been people in, in past generations that have tried to be sensitive to the mood of the culture, make things palatable, structure their arguments, their language in a way to not be, to and wherever, wherever possible, to remove offense. Um, and in doing so, I mean, that, that's, that's fine. Um, but I think our generation, and even younger now, and sad, I think we're getting old enough where we can start to kind of think of, you know, a generation coming behind us, but that we're seeing people now that they've realized that any kind of attempt that the church has made to soften things or to make it more palatable for the world has ultimately been rejected and used against the church. So it's it's been kind of used against them as like, well, you're already going this far. Now you need to go further. Like any, any effort that's made is kind of thrown back in the face and it's, it's, it's a demand. Well, either you go further or, um, we're going to attack you as bigots, as, um, sexist, racist, whatever else. So I think we're getting a generation now that's realized a lot of those attempts and that, that kind of middle ground, um, softer language, uh, it didn't work. And it, it didn't do anything to improve uh, the church's uh, estimation in the culture. And in fact, it, it probably did a lot to hurt it because you had a lot of people that found ways to be um, really more in line with the culture, but also be acceptable in the church. So um, now you got people seeing that didn't work. So we're, we're trying to grasp back, like, okay, so if that wasn't the right thing, if that if that attempt to try and be more palatable wasn't effective, then let's go and be as, as accurate as we can scripturally. And if it offends, it offends. Uh, and that's where we're getting this kind of this drawback to 
you know, this, this patriarchal kind of position and, and looking at things again through that and thinking, well, maybe, maybe there's more to that. Uh, and maybe, you know, the Old Testament isn't just full of monsters and guys that are abusive. And maybe, maybe God's not actually, maybe he wasn't pretty mean in the Old Testament in the way he was uh, organizing families and societies and, and trying to work within that. Maybe there's a purpose for what we see throughout Scripture uh, in the relationships between men and women in, among God's people. You mean it all ties together from beginning to end? You know, wouldn't that be just wonderful if it did? If we could, if we could see all all of Scripture, all of history as uh, as one story, as God working one plan of redemption uh, among His one people, that would that would just blow my mind. You fell in love with me for my sarcasm, didn't you? Well, we'll we'll say sure. No, <laughs> I, I fell in love with you for your beautiful smile and kindness. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <So>, okay. <laughs> so yeah, it, we we would we would take that that patriarchal kind of position. We would take that. We would even claim that that um that title as now, but realizing that there are some people that call themselves patriarchal, and that you do so uh, in order to really be more abusive and toxic. Um, let's let's just acknowledge that that can happen, uh, and say that's not where we're going, and that's not where we are, and we would. Uh, we would call them out in war against that every bit as much as we would uh, the most left-leaning egalitarian. So we're going to, you know, think about uh, manhood, womanhood uh, as as they are united. You know, the bond between them, which is marriage, um, which to kind of go back to the beginning. That's why we started with the cold open, looking back to creation. There was that specific order in creation that God makes man in His own image. Um, man has all of other, all the rest of God's creation basically paraded before him. And, and God saying, man alone within all of creation, that there was something not good. There was something inadequate about man. The chief of his creation was, um, it, w- it was not good where he was at because there was no helper for him. So uh, we've we got to start at the beginning. That God designed mankind in his image and that in his image is in male and female that there is a fundamental interdependence between the masculine and the feminine in our species. Um, the woman was taken from man, and then men are born of women. So there is, there is no category where men and women um, can exist or create independently. They really are defined um, from one another and, and alongside one another and, and with uh, one another. And again, that would have never been a question all throughout history, but for some reason... It seems to be a question today. <laughs> yeah, the, the the number of things that we've decided are now debatable uh, is is mind blowing. So the we recognize that the image of God is present in the male and female, and also that the joining together of the two represents a more full or balanced picture of God. That there is something um, inadequate standing on its own in a man or in a woman to fully image. God. Um, the only the only caveat we're going to put in any of this is that obviously Jesus, as the Son of God, fully imaged the Father. There, there was nothing lacking in Him um, as born of the Spirit, um, truly God, truly man. So there, you know, we're we're going to caveat that a little bit with with Christ and just allow that the incarnation um, can bend this normal pattern a little bit. Um, with with uh, who Jesus was and how he could be fully and complete in himself, but but for 
for the species as a whole, you know, and this is going right back to creation, uh, there was something that wasn't good with the man by himself, and the woman was needed. She was created for the man, to be a helper for the man. And then we see this uh, God saying, and this was very good, you know, when he finally sees that, that, that bond uh, between the man and the woman, and where it's that bond in which they will forsake their other familial bonds, uh, not not abandon their their responsibility to their parents. That's not what that means. But uh, there there's a separating from other relationships to uniquely bond with the woman, and um, that was that's part of God's good purpose and design for mankind. And that is where mankind is then seen as as complete in that relationship. So the design, if if we're talking all this kind of language, that this is what God's design is. Uh, we would say then, so that this, if this is God's design, then this should also therefore be the normal expectation for all people that that they would get married uh, and build a family. So that that's fundamental to to how God made us as a species. He has uh, designed us with with different drivers within us uh, to make us deeply desire the things that are only allowable to us within marriage. So that to the, these basic drives that push us together to form this bond and, and to build a family. I want to make a little nuance here that we aren't trying to heap guilt on anyone who is single that hasn't would love a spouse but hasn't God hasn't brought them one yet or who would love to have children but hasn't been God hasn't seen fit to bless them with children yet. This is not meant to heap guilt on you. Right. And we want to have yeah, the deepest um, empathy, sympathy in those kind of circumstances, but also acknowledge that the fact that, that someone who wants to be married um, feels somehow missing, like they're missing something or, or a married couple that uh, can't have kids. It's acknowledging the design when they feel that it's, way. It's absolutely acknowledging that there is something broken and that doesn't mean something broken about them. There's something broken with our fallen world that people would be um, childless. And and it's absolutely acknowledged that this is a result, uh, under most circumstances, this is a result just of, of general sin from the fall. Um, now, there are a lot of times in the Old Testament that you'll see that being childless uh, is the punishment for specific sins, specific sexual sins and different things that, you know, uh, you'll see different Levitical codes that um, so-and-so, you know, if they kind of do this kind of thing, have this kind of relationship, well, well, they will die childless. Or so, you might see childlessness put upon a nation due to their wickedness. Right. So there, there's that element that can be there. Uh, and I think that there's there's a tie into, um, you know, I'm just going to briefly make a comment on, on the fact that it is June. Let's acknowledge that it's June. Let's acknowledge what flags are flying everywhere. Uh, childlessness, um, this this kind of impotence, follows sexual depravity, follows sin, follows rejection of God, uh, and, and this is a whole movement that is sterile. That that they they castrate themselves, they mutilate their bodies, or they perform um, unspeakable acts uh, in ways and with people that cannot bear fruit. So there is that kind of that follows that line. So there is an aspect that can be there with childlessness. And we, we do see infertility rates are much higher in our nation now than they used to be. And so, I mean, there 
there could be a place for there being a plague of infertility upon the nation, but an individual per, an individual Christian shouldn't necessarily see their infertility struggles as a judgment upon them, but more just coming from the fact that they live in a sinful world. Right. In the, in the same way that you can have... Um, you can have a man or a woman who has been healthy their whole life, never drank a drop of alcohol, never smoked a cigarette, uh, exercised regularly, um, didn't do anything unhealthy in their life, and still at a young age get struck with cancer. Well, that's clearly it's not because they made decisions in their life. Uh, it's because we live in a fallen world. Uh, um, so in that kind of same respect, that there are Christians um, who don't find the spouse that they desired, or, or Christian couples who then aren't able to have the children they desire, who can be very faithful, godly, pious, just, just wonderful Christian people. And that doesn't mean then, so that, that's not, their affliction is not then tied to their sinfulness or their unworthiness, because plenty of people are having children who are not worthy <laughs> of, of being gifted with the gift of life like that. Um, so we're not making that kind of direct correlation, but we we do just need to acknowledge that that built into the design of man and woman is that they would be joined together in a more complete whole than they would be individually, and and that they would have children, that they would um, propagate the species, that they would bring up more after them to continue the work that God has given them, to take dominion over the world, uh, to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Uh, th- that is the normal expectation that we should have. And, and as we said, the, the fact that so many people are just brokenhearted when they are lacking those things, uh, it, 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 uh, we owe them encouragement, sympathy, and love, but it only serves to prove the point that this should be the natural thing. This is the natural expectation and desire for mankind. Well, I want to just plug in there, too. We're talking about one side of that pendulum, but then the other side is where people purposely avoid starting a family or getting married due to their own selfish desires. And yeah, and that's where, um, you know, the, the flip side of that is, is that, you know, there, let's, let's just set aside the, the, the small number of scenarios under which we think that God really calls somebody to permanent celibacy and singleness. Um, we would say those are few and far in between. Few and far in between, and probably uh, when they do happen, have been tied to specific issues going on in different places and times, or the, the, the few times where it might be appropriate for a couple to, for a short time, delay having children. We'll acknowledge maybe there's some times there and we're not going to debate that. But for the vast majority of people, um, the desire to avoid or unnecessary delay the finding of a spouse and the building of a family is the result of a rejection of God's design and purpose for mankind. That for the vast majority, the vast majority, this is a mark of idolatry. As their chosen gods, whatever they might be, demand something of them other than what God has designed for them. And that's why they choose to not be married. And that's why they choose to not have kids. So the ones that willfully make those decisions, um, that's, that's almost always in the service of some God other than the God of the Bible. Well, I wanted to bring up here, I've actually been reading a book called Conception Control, Avoid, 
Avoiding Antinomianism and Legalism by Philip Kaiser. That's a mouthful. (laughs) But uh, in that book, he is specifically, it's very balanced, but he's talking about conception control versus birth control. And uh, it's trying to avoid the, the fundamental Christian view of you, the kind of the quiverful movement of you should have all the kids that, you know, you could possibly have. We would not be for that. Um, and then on the other side, the flip side of that is doing actually what is really common today in most even evangelical churches, which is just, you can do all the birth control you want. Um, and you know, you don't have to actually go to scripture to, find out what God has to say. And we're talking specifically about what's going on in Christian marriages. Not obviously there is abortion, which is a an abomination in the sight of God and is idolatry at its worst. Um, and so right now, though, we're talking specifically about the way that Christians approach fertility within their marriage. And so you have these, you know, two different vastly different sides. One side, think of quiverful movement that have all the babies you can have. And then the other side where it's, you have complete autonomy to control your fertility. That God's not even a factor in that That equation. God's not even a factor in that equation. It's very much influenced by culture and which our culture is influenced by feminism and saturated by feminism. And so that's what is influencing that side rather than the Bible rather than prayer and what God would have to say on that matter, not just how culture would, whatever culture standards are for what looks like a, a perfect little family, Instagram filter and all. Yeah, we're not, we're not, we're not going to argue at this moment um, for exactly what conclusions you should come to with that. Uh, and there's a wide range of places where people get to, but I mean, really decrying at this moment is that, that this is something that most people, they do fall on the side of either God has nothing to do with it or they wrongly just um, see Scripture and say, like, well, then God has commanded me that I have to do, have as many kids as I possibly can. And we think they're, they're, those are two ditches that are, are wrong, are, are wrong and, and can cause a, a lot of heartache. So what, what this book is actually arguing for and what we would argue for is that men and women are both called to take dominion over the earth. And that means all aspects of the earth, but they're supposed to do that to the glory of God. And so in the same way that we would take dominion over our diet— and we would take dominion over our health, and our fertility can be, uh, you know, filed under health and how we take care of those things. So there absolutely are reasons that one might need to space their children uh, for the the wife to be able to recover after childbirth or from an injury, or um, there's lots of different reasons. But oftentimes in our modern day, the reasons that we do those things are based on material things and are influenced by cultural notions of what it means to have enough money for right. to the the you know that we bought without ever saying and I don't know most people would never phrase it this way but it's as though um, we've got this idea that unless um, my kids get to do all the activities that all the other kids get to do or unless they get to have a certain level of comfort, uh, a certain level of affluence and and benefit handed to them um, when they're when they're grown. Unless all those things happen, then they do not have a life worth living. Uh, so therefore, let's not make more of them. I mean, that's really 
and I know that seems to be a, a strong way to put it, but that's kind of where it comes down to it. It's it's determining what would be what what kind of life would be worth living for a child, and uh, and it's sad how low of a bar that, or maybe how high of a bar, I guess people would would set on that a lot of times. Like, well, I, we couldn't possibly have any more kids because uh, then a child might have to share a room, or, or we couldn't possibly have any more kids because then we couldn't pay for them all to go to Harvard or, or you know, whatever kind of silly thing that might be. Uh, and, and that's like your benchmark of, of what is a life that you think is worth bringing more people into the, into the world for. Um, and really when that, when that's kind of, if that's your mindset, then is that really what you think our greatest um, calling is as parents to provide for our children? And I would really challenge you to find that in scripture. Well, and I just think that people forget or maybe don't see we talk about children being a blessing but it's specifically for the christian family that is having children children are a blessing and the whole idea of raising arrows to be able to shoot into the world for (laughs) to go along with the analogy but it's scriptural um to be able to bring the gospel um once you have discipled them and they are grown (laughs) to let them out into the world and then they will bring glory to God and share the gospel as well. Yeah, no, you're right. It's children, for, for believers, children are a blessing. And and there's a discussion to be had another day maybe of uh, is of the times when children aren't a blessing. Um, but just for brevity's sake, that that's always tied to when children haven't been raised under the discipline of the Lord. Um, you know, the, the children that... Um, that Proverbs would say a father hates, you know, those the son he doesn't discipline, that kind of thing. Um, so those children that have been raised hated by their parents and have no structure. Um, and even then, we, w- we would not at all ever advocate that their life wasn't worth living, but it's it's a different category of, of what they experience or what, what they will bring to their parents. And that's, you know, we talk about children a blessing to their parents. It's 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 there's tangible things it's not just a blessing as though you should be at this happy kind of thing it's there's tangible uh things behind that of of what they bring you know the the honor and and security and, and joy um and blood and and prosperity they that the children raised in the fear and admonition of the lord bring to their parents i was talking with a friend the other day and she said that she mentioned to an older woman that she knew about the fact that we had a a family integrated church and the woman just went why would you ever do that? I couldn't stand listening to all those babies during the sermon. I wouldn't hear anything. And my friend was like, she didn't know deer in headlights. She didn't know what to respond with. But I mean, that is a con that uh, people have been trained to feel that way because family integrated churches were the thing for all of history. But there is now this idea that children are a nuisance and should be, what is it seen and not heard? Well, I've I've heard that you know that kind of mentality from, and about it's always struck me as funny because I, I enjoy my children, and there's very few things that that I do um, other than you know the work that I have to do, um, but there's very few things that we do for for leisure or for you know anything like that that's not doesn't involve our kids. We we enjoy our kids, but to hear people uh, say like you know talk about how much oh I just love my kids, but. And then, like the first moment it comes to anything to do with having to be around them much, it's like, ah, oh, I just, I just go crazy if they're around you. Like, you know, the, the kind of the COVID did this for all the kids. You know, the public school kids that had to be at home for a while, and you know, the parents that act like that it was just driving them insane to have their kids around them much. It's just how, how obnoxious it was, and how they just couldn't handle it. And it's just like, well, that really strikes. There, there's something that's of discord there. Of 
supposedly I love these children. They're my life. But if they're around me, they make me want to end my life. Um, and that just doesn't make sense because that's not, that's not the experience that we have with our kids nor is the experience I think we should. But I think in the church, people reflect that kind of mentality of, oh, the kids are the greatest thing ever, but let's make sure we've got that right program so we can send them all across the building to that program so somebody else can deal with them. So then we can be say, you know, we can have the accolades that we have children here, but we don't have to deal with them. But this just gets back to a heart issue that has grown and, and has been influenced by our modern culture, which is saturated by feminism of just the, the need to ha- be the individual person that doesn't have to have the responsibility of children laid upon them if they don't want it. Yeah. Well, let's, we got a couple more points we were going to discuss. Let's, uh, let's work that direction. Um, so I just want to reiterate kind of as we move towards the close of this first half of our talk on marriage uh, is that, you know, marriage is the core of the family. Uh, so we've been saying how, how marriage is so, so much of an indispensable part of what it means to be human, that God designed men and women to, to be joined together, to function together, and that, that marriage so then is the core of the family, and the family is the building block of all human society. So with that, and why, why we want to uh, make this such a focal point, is that the family will not be healthier than the marriage of its parents. So, so if, if mom and dad aren't doing well, the family is not doing well. You know, so you can, you can have that, that, uh, that saying all you want, that, you know, happy wife, happy life. But uh, the reality is that if, if you don't have a happy marriage, you will not have a happy home. Um, so that, that's the mar- health of the marriage is central to the health of the family. Uh, and then if you take that out one more step, uh, the health of society or the health of the church as, as kind of a society within society uh, will never be healthier than its families. Uh, and we shouldn't even need to go beyond that. Just look around us. Um, look at what's happened, and it's easy to trace, as the families have fallen apart and, and the fabric of marriage has been undermined, what that did to the family, and when the family's broken up, what that has done to society. That's a very clear path. That's why we're so focused on, on marriage as the core of the family. Well, and it went from its larger part to its smaller parts. So we went from the breakdown of the family, um, and I'm even going back to like the what was the no fault divorce, and then it, it broke down to homosexual marriage, and now we're to these smaller parts of what is a man and what is a woman. Yeah, I mean the 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 the, the chaos that has flowed, but I mean there you can draw a natural line uh, back to the point where marriages started to get be weakened, um, where. You know, it was more and more common, you know, parents leaving the home and being gone from the home for extended periods of time. Um, the, you know, both parents even. Um, and, and, you know, starting to, to, to hire out aspects of, of, of parenting, you know, for daycare, for schooling, for any number of kind of things that just chipped away. Any one of the issues maybe wasn't so critical, but chip after chip after chip just knocked off of the structure. Uh, and then, yeah, then when... Um, divorce became something that it was easy to do. Uh, it used to ruin somebody to be divorced. Uh, I mean, it, there was stigma attached to it. There was so much cultural pressure to stay married. Um, but now it's there's it's the completely opposite. There's cultural pressure just to be the happiest version of yourself that you can be, and 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 don't let anybody ever guilt you into 
to being less happy with yourself than you could be. I mean, that, that's garbage. But that's that's kind of where things have gone. And there's a, you can doubt a clear line through all those things of confusion, confusion, fracturing, falling apart, uh, less and less order. And as disorder grows, then more things that ne- you never thought would be questioned are all of a sudden questioned, confused, and lost. So we, we, we just we recognize we will not be able to build or rebuild society without recovering God's design for marriage. So unless we get this right, unless we, in our own homes and in our churches, uh, talk about these things, teach about these things, work toward these things, and then... Train up our children to understand these things. Train up our children to understand these things. So, but yeah, we've got... We have uh, just our marriage, but then we've got seven children. If we can influence seven marriages just through our children, not to mention who, those other ones that God might give us influence over in the church and our community, but just through those seven marriages. Uh, and if they ha- have even just a few kids, I mean, you just there's this growing influence of, of trying to build that back in and attack it head on. So we're not going to be able to, to influence society or, or strengthen our churches without strengthening our marriages. Um, so that that's really, without without that, we, we can't uh, influence our culture. We can't build an alternate society within our culture, you know, with, with an alternate economy and, and make ourselves truly uncancelable. Uh, we can't do those things unless we've got healthy homes and at the heart of the home is the healthy marriage. So we, if we neglect the key role of marriage in the building of human society, and if we neglect the, the key role of marriage in mankind fulfilling its role in creation, all of this um, is just going to lead to further and further degradation. And sadly, um, maybe end with a bit of a hot take here, uh, sadly, a lot of this, the fact that we've neglected these kind of things, this kind of building, strengthening, um, laying foundations, looking generations ahead, that kind of thing that that if, if you're doing that, it's really going to focus your energy within your home. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the neglect of that is a consequence of an eschatolo- eschatological view that believes that the church is just going to exist in perpetual retreat until the final coming of Jesus. So, If it, you believe that the world is going to hell in a handbag, why would you try? Yeah, and, and you've got to... We've been taught for generations, you know, most of the evangelical church, at least most of the Baptist kind of evangelical church, that, you know, it's we're, you know, we're just looking for the rapture. It's just, it could be tomorrow. It's, it's going to be soon. And every, every newspaper is another reason. Uh, newspapers were things that used to be delivered to houses every day. That's how we got our news um, for those who are, are a little bit younger than we are. But you'd be looking every day and seeing more headlines and say, this is just proof that, you know, Jesus is going to come soon. Um, and that, while that itself doesn't, teach people to neglect their marriage, it it also doesn't lay that same kind of importance of um, building something for your home and building your home and, and building instilling into your children something that will last for generation after generation. It's why we want to always kind of point to like, we need to be looking. So yes, as we live for Christ, we need to be looking ahead for our children, our children's children. We want to think about our great, great grandchildren. What kind of things can we do today? And what kind of things can we teach our children to, uh, by God's grace, and it is by God's grace to have, you know, great, great grandchildren that are still walking in the faith and are still building things and, and going out and influencing the world. And that that is the mindset that chips away at things. That is the mindset that beats back uh, the darkness uh, that's in society. And that's the mindset that that 
people had in the past, you know, the Puritans had that kind of mindset. You know, the 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 Protestants, early early Protestants had that kind of mindset. That's when the people that came over and found founded America, um, well, that's the kind of mindset they had, and that's why they so quickly built a nation that that was thriving as other nations around the world were struggling because they had that kind of vision. But I want to remind everyone that every single one of those people who were doing those big things that we look back now and see as really big things, it looked really mundane to them. Yeah. You know, we, we, we sometimes think, you know, I wish I just could have that big moment and then I could, then I could do it. If I knew it was going to be important, if I knew it was that important, I would do it. Um, but the people that are, that typically God has used in, in the mighty big ways are the ones that have seen every moment as a necessary opportunity to be obedient to what God has called them to, to be faithful, um, and really lived out that parable, you know, that those who were faithful with little, then God would trust them with much. And to those who already had, more would be given. That, that, that's a biblical mindset, that if you are, uh, you are a fool, if you sit around waiting for God to give you something more worthy of your effort, and then you'll be diligent and faithful. You are a fool if you do that. Just be diligent with the time he has put you in and what he's given you now. Yes, be diligent. Um, take what he has given you. Invest what he has given you. And he will either accept what you give him in the small ways and, and be pleased with you, or he will give you more. Um, but he will not call you wicked servant if you have you been diligent and faithful with what he has given you. Uh, and that's really why we're why we want to drive at this kind of stuff so often and, and why we're going to continue to and why we're so focused on, on reforming the family, on, on looking back to those things that have come before is because we need to be faithful in all the little things and look at how um, scripture would, would, would direct us in all the little areas of life and think through it systematically so that we can be faithful uh, and then trust that God will move in that and through that. Um, you know, this is, this is a, a great place to, to stop, um, and we hope that you'll come back next week. And until you do, we just want to call on you to live for Jesus. He alone uh, deserves your, your life, your all, your, your heart, your, your passion. He alone uh, is worth living for, uh, but do so with an eye towards your children and your children's children. This is the Reformed Faith and Family Podcast.